0: Hi, welcome to this month's PCRF Journal Club. I'm Stephanie Ellis. We have an important paper identified for today's discussion and a great group of panelists gathered here. They're excited to get started and discuss this research with you today. So without further ado, I would like to introduce today's panelists. We have Dave Page here, who is the director of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum at UCLA and a field paramedic with a line at EMS in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. He's an adjunct senior lecturer and PhD candidate at Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Then we have Sahaj Khalsa. He is the program director for the Emergency Medical Services Institute at Santa Fe Community College in New Mexico. He has been interested in research for many years and has been involved with research projects that have been presented at both NEMC and EMS Today. We also have Paul Rosenberger, who is adjunct faculty for Tarrant County College in Fort Worth, Texas, and Dallas County Community College District. Finally, we have Sean Britton. He's the Director of Public Health and Deputy EMS Coordinator in Broome County, New York. He's also Adjunct Instructor of Criminal Justice and Emergency Services at Broome Community College and an AEMT board member. Research interests include issues affecting the EMS workforce and the intersection between EMS and public health. Also, we have Christina Morley, who will be looking for your questions and comments, as well as providing technical support and unmuting any of you who want to jump into the discussion. Please send her your questions using the questions button, comment, ask technical questions using the chat function, or raise your hand if you'd like to address the panelists yourself via good old-fashioned voice. Without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to our panelists.
1: Well, thanks, Steph. It's a pleasure to be here. This is Dave Page, and um, another edition of the care Research uh, Journal Club is uh, kicking off, and I uh, am very pleased to introduce the uh, paper we're going to do by Dr. Shah et al. It's uh, "Impact of High-Fidelity Pediatric Simulation on Paramedic Seizure Management," and uh, Manish Shah. I hope I'm pronouncing that uh, well. Uh, Dr. John Carey and Dr. uh, Sarah Rapp were amongst the authors Uh, this is a a paper based out of Houston and it's sort of fun to see uh, both uh, pediatrics and uh, high fidelity simulation combined I also love the fact that they um, were working off the PD steps which is a culture of safety uh, Department of Defense program the the um, Team Steps uh, is the uh, name of the original uh, project. So, without further ado, I thought that maybe Sean could uh, uh, begin the process by summarizing the abstract. Are you up for it, Sean? I'm ready to go. All right, take it away.
2: Well, thank you very much. So, this was a study whose primary research question was if High fidelity training through the PD STEPS program would enhance overall seizure protocol adherence, specifically with blood glucose measurement and the proper administration of midazolam for actively seizing children. And they were also interested in overall outcomes and care for these patients by both EMS and the emergency department. So, what they did was they enrolled ALS and BLS providers within the Houston Fire Department into the PD STEPS training program and they tried to break it out across different geographic regions and shifts and the end result was that approximately 25% of the ALS providers within the department were trained in the PD steps program they then did a retrospective review of the of the patients the pediatric patients who were actively seizing who were brought to identified hospitals during the study period and in order to meet the criteria for inclusion the patient had to be a pediatric who was actively seizing, and the medical records had to be available. And from that group, they wound up with a total of 250 pediatric patients meeting the incl- inclusion criteria. And of those patients, 26% were cared for by a pd steps trained ALS provider. They then looked to see if pd steps was correlated with higher compliance of the protocol, And they found there was a slight increase in both blood glucose determination being performed as well as administration of midazolam. One of my other colleagues on the call is going to get more into the specifics of of that finding and um, clinical significance versus statistical significance. Ultimately, when the study was concluded, they had found that there were um, varying levels of differences between the two groups. And so they think that pediatric seizure management, uh, I'm sorry, they think that high fidelity simulation training does have a benefit, but this particular study didn't necessarily definitively or uh, very conclusively support that. They also had an incidental finding that so few patients were hypoglycemic, there may be some reconsideration to the importance of obtaining blood glucose.
1: Love it. That That's a good starting point. Um, so, Hedge, do you want to jump in a little bit in this uh, uh, podcast and just talk a little bit about your overall thoughts on this?
3: Sure. So, I think that uh, oftentimes when we look at a, a research project or research paper and we see that there's not statistical significance and the findings that they had here, didn't rise to the level of statistical significance it might be an easy um out to say well there's not much there but i think that that would be uh, an unfortunate thing to do here because when we look at the discussion and when we actually dig through the numbers that they had there may be i think there is in fact some pretty significant uh, clinical significance to what they found and um some of it was just mentioned with the, the low levels of patients who had hypoglycemia, even though much of our training makes that a high priority to check um, with patients, but uh, perhaps more importantly was the medication administration errors that they found and the, the number of patients for whom, uh, who were given an incorrect dose of the medication. and addressing why that is even though that finding wasn't correlated with the training one way or another
1: so for people who are unfamiliar with the study itself that might be listening and haven't read it 35 percent more of these um, Houston paramedics began giving uh, or checking blood sugars and 39 percent more began uh, administering midazolam so there was there was definitely an increase here uh, and um, that, that that means that You know the intervention did have some effect right but because there weren't enough cases then we we don't reach statistical significance and I think Keith um, Monosky is going to jump in and and give us a little bit of background on that Um, I think that the more interesting statement that you made here about sometimes you know you go in thinking that you're studying one thing and you discover something else and um, and so studies designed for one thing that discover something else are always We always have to be careful about what we're reporting because you know we need to be intentional as scientists to uh, be measuring what what we what we intend to measure but um, 51% medication administration um, error is you know 51% of children received uh, the correct doses excuse me so there's a 49% error rate a 51% accuracy rate on medication administration children most frequently, frequently, 89% of it was under dosing. So, they, people got kids got less medazolam than they should have uh, in order to stop the seizure, which is alarming, um, but is very consistent with other past research that shows that we cannot uh, achieve a high degree of um, accuracy when it comes to medication administration, especially any dosages that are calculated or drawn up. We seem to just miss the boat there, and again, in terms of discovering things that we might not have thought we discovered, you turn back to a study, for example, that After Heidi did in um, in Milwaukee, they were going after uh, pulse pressures during CPR and inserting arterial lines to see if there was um, uh, pulses and PEAs, but they, in the process, discovered that. Uh, patients were being hyperventilated and during CPR we were just ventilating a lot you know very frequently or, or not frequently enough so you know this may be a case like that where we went in trying to see if the if in fact the intervention made a difference but um, the dosage calculations were so far off that uh, uh, were are really concerned about that and, and again very consistent with other studies um, Keith dr. Manoski do you want to say anything about statistical significance here in terms of the numbers they achieved? there's just um, uh, 250 patients here met met inclusion
4: sure Dave uh, thank you very much for the opportunity to to discuss this very interesting article um, well you know it, it, the the discussion that's been held thus far on this uh, I think is quite relevant because I think in pre-hospital care we tend to be uh, very attuned to this evidence-based practice concept, and as important as that is, it's important to also recognize that there might be two distinctions here. Uh, if something is statistically significant, it means that the uh, the incidence of its occurrence, based upon probability statistics, is such that um, uh, it should raise awareness, and that it is either statistically not significant or it is significant and what's meant by that is if it's statistically significant is that it's a little bit unusual and i'll talk about that in just a second but um i think what the panelists are discussing here i think is of equal importance and that is clinical significance Um, when we think about evidence-based practice most researchers think of that in terms of uh, statistical significance but as you can see here even though there was not a lot of correlation in some of these statistics there certainly were some very significant clinical events uh, as Dave mentioned you know the the incidence of uh, uh, midazolam administration being as it was uh, in an inappropriate dose and underdosing them the fact that 36 uh, percent of the patients uh, the patients wait Uh, was not even documented by EMS and so on and so forth so these are clinical significant findings that help underscore the importance of this study but going back to the statistical aspects of this one of the things that we'll see on these tables if you have that journal article in front of you are p-values and odds ratios which are a fundamental measure in uh, statistical research in determining whether or not two events have uh, causality or relationship to one another um, and if I may I'd like to just start off with the odds ratio uh, because it's pretty prevalent in this article and I think it's important the uh, the odds ratio as a brief overview and, and panelists please feel free to jump in here at any point I'm certainly by no means a statistician uh, but the odds ratio is basically a measure that demonstrates uh, some type of relationship between two events Uh, So if the odds ratio goes above one, uh, there is an increasing indication that the two events are associated in some way. Of course, if the odds ratio goes well above one, then that relationship is even stronger. Uh, If it goes below one, then then it's suggested that that relationship is small. So when you look through this article and when you look through some of the relationships of two events, Uh, when you're looking for the odds ratio, you want to see if that number is larger than one and how large above one it actually is. Um, Moving on to the p-value. The p-value is a probability statistic and this is used in research to evaluate uh, what is referred to as the null hypothesis, which basically means that the two events or the the two uh, areas of measurement have no relationship to one another. Um, So when you're looking at p-values it's really measuring the probability that that event, that measurement, is uh, either equal to or much more extreme than what was actually observed. So in that instance when the p-value is below what is usually considered as a standard, which is um, 0.05, in some cases with greater statistical significance is uh, 0.01, yeah if it's below uh, 0.05 then the uh, the null hypothesis uh, can be rejected meaning that there is a difference between those two values so as you look through these tables you'll notice that the p values generally are well above 0.05 which again statistically speaking means that um uh, there's 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 no there's no measurable difference from probability statistics between the values so um I don't know if that cleared the matter up or clouded it even more, but um, what, um, is there anything else the panelists would want to add to that?
1: Wow, I think that's that's great. I think if somebody doesn't uh, recognize odds ratios and, and uh, statistics, I think that summarizes it very nicely. Um,
5: Paul, do you want to jump in here a little bit with your with comments? Sure. Um, You know, going back to the dosing errors that you you previously mentioned, um, this is one of the discussion pieces in the article and as you said before, um, dosing errors occurred in 49 percent of the patients and um, 87 percent were underdosed, 13 percent were overdosed and the uh, authors hypothesized what was the cause of the the errors and they listed five. Um, The first one being There was a difference in the length-based tape uh, that the providers had in their kits versus the actual protocol that Houston Fire used. And so there was a discrepancy between the the administration, uh, between those two different pieces of reference. Um, They also hypothesized that perhaps the problem was a lack of familiarity with uh, the diagnostic and treatment options. They also mentioned uh, the psychological stress that may have occurred because these providers treating patients who were pediatrics who were seizing. Perhaps there were memory losses, that was their fourth. And then um, being that Houston is an urban area and had very short transport times, they suspected that maybe these, some of these patients were possibly not treated um, because of the short transport times. And so um, as a result of that, one of the, uh, the adjustments they made in the, the protocol there was that they recognized the importance of intranasal and intramuscular administration of midazolam over IV or IO because of the delay um, in starting those those procedures and getting the drugs on board for these patients. So it goes back to the, the clinical piece, the clinical significance of the study that they found.
1: You know, this journal, journal club is uh, paired with the articles that uh, appear in GEMS on research review intentionally, and, and we should have mentioned GEMS as a partner to this uh, entire endeavor right from the outset. But um, we have seen other studies that sort of begin to, to touch on these matters, and um, it's um, if you go back to some of the archives of the research review, uh, columns we've wanted to dive into uh, particularly some of the some of the discrepancies that you're talking about um, I, I I would encourage anybody listening in and we have a bunch of listeners uh, to to just jump in some of you may have an entire paramedic class uh, present and assembled I know um, Westchester College is is online and Richard Ellis and his group is online so don't don't hesitate to uh, jump in with comments or questions it's an open uh, journal club forum we um, uh, I think have here a, a great classic example of uh, education and clinical practice blended in a nice research project. Um, we often wonder if high fidelity simulation matters, and most of it is measured by by student satisfaction. You know, did you enjoy the high fidelity simulation? Did it make a difference? But here they actually went and said, "Let's see if it mattered to patient care," which I think is the right message. Right? We do education not for the sake of education, and for fun or for pleasure or for uh, education for the sake of education but rather if it's going to change our practice and, and take good care of patients and here they really focused on the outcome which is you know evidence-based medicine uh, I also think it's you need to dive into the numbers to begin to understand some of this when you when you start to see uh, numbers of children uh, here you know uh, 82 out of 161 children getting the correct dose of midazolam and 144 uh, children that actually received a dose of midazolam that were seizing out of 250 that's that's uh, those are alarming numbers you know in, in terms of uh, uh, really thinking about who we're taking care of and whether or not we're really um, uh, doing it properly uh, I wonder if any of you have some comments about that
2: Dave, I thought it was pretty interesting uh, looking at the paper and the prevalence of blood glucose being checked, both among the PD-STEPs and non-PD-STEPs trained practitioners. And I think we see that on table number, table two within the study on page five. And it's very interesting that among the PD-STEPs trained paramedics, there was 72% that checked the blood glucose, and 66% of the non pd steps trained paramedics checked it. And I thought that was very interesting because within the EMS Compass project and the push towards national performance measures, I'm pretty certain blood glucose determination among seizure patients is in there in the proposed performance measures that we should be utilizing nationally. And I think it's, it's very in- interesting that we have what I would off-the-cuff, uh, say, are, are lower rates than I would expect. I would have thought uh, mid to upper 90s on blood glucose determination for an actively seizing patient. So it's, it's very interesting that this study, even though that wasn't the main intent of it, puts a little light on what may wind up being very beneficial performance measures and that some of the things that we might think we're doing all the time we're really not.
1: Do you think people are scared to prick the finger of a child, or or cause them further pain, or or um, why, in the middle of a uh, a seizure or or in a postictal state, would we not want to uh, check the sugar here? Just, where is that barrier that we don't we're not doing it?
2: I I would guess it's just um, the high the high stress of the event. I would think it's. You're looking at a a child, which automatically makes everyone a little less confident because we see a very small percentage of children among all the patients we serve. And if they're actively seizing, you know that there's a medical emergency occurring. And so there might be a little bit of a disconnect between the training and education you've received in the past and now how we need to perform.
1: You know it, it's interesting because I think high fidelity simulation it's high impact it's high anxiety high uh, stress I mean we're supposed to be professionals who deal with nine one one this is our job is to remain calm in a crisis and actually do the things we're supposed to do um, and your point is uh, maybe we aren't maybe you know they introduced the, uh, a high a high uh, acuity but low frequency event like a pediatric seizure. And we go deer in the headlights and and forget stuff, which is the whole point of having checklists, but if our checklists are flawed, does a bralow tape tell us to check a sugar? Does the you know what do we have that's a sort of a checklist to help us with that?
3: So, so can I jump in here for a second?: Yeah, please. So what I thought was interesting is not I, I agree with the discussion that's happening here that uh, uh, what I was surprised as a small percentage relatively of folks who checked the blood sugar Uh, but then I was also surprised at the really small percentage of patients who actually were hypoglycemic and then the, the authors sort of recommendation that we consider reprioritizing and deprioritizing a blood sugar check in a seizure patient and I don't know that I even with that low percentage of hypoglycemic patients I don't know that I agreed with that sort of recommendation and I'm wondering if any of the other folks had a reaction to that uh... Yeah. recommendation to deprioritize a blood sugar check because what was it four patients were hypoglycemic I think
1: yeah so yeah. if those four right. four kids are your kids uh, suddenly that's a different story right?
3: Well,
4: Good.
3: I was just thinking that that's a big thing to miss, right? Yeah.
4: Yeah. That this is Keith again, and that was the point I was trying to drill down to before. uh, Is that there is a distinction between uh, clinical significance and and statistical significance? Because statistically, uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, there are very few that were hypoglycemic and even benefited from any intervention. Um, So if we were to use evidence-based practice by statistical measures we wouldn't be checking gl- blood glucose on uh, seizing pediatric patients so that that's, that's an interesting uh, limitation and speaking of limitation one more thing I'll add if I may is that the authors did an incredible job here at recognizing the limitations of the study and their encouragement that it be repeated with a larger population which I I think is an excellent recommendation because I think with more patients I think the results might actually even be different statistically yeah,
1: yeah. I and wonder if anybody from Houston Fire is, is actually on the line so I'm gonna uh, just interject if, if you are please speak up we'd love to hear a little bit more about what this PD steps nine-hour training was like and what it emphasized but keep going sorry hey, it's hey, like you have comments
5: David so can I add a little bit this is Paul yeah uh, um, you know Houston fire is a very big service and Houston's a very big town and to look at the numbers they got with only 250 patients that actually made the inclusion criteria this would probably have to be a multi-site study that would involve you know other communities large communities to get the numbers that they needed
1: that's a great point Um, I think they started with um, uh, 2200 potential cases Mm -hmm yes Um, so and I I forget exactly what the time period was for this but it looks like it's two years Um, so there's 2200 potential seizures and um, um, a whole whopping 88 percent were excluded because uh, either ALS was not involved or when they arrived the patient was not actively seizing so this blood glucose thing to me is huge. If they arrive and they're not actively seizing, I would have loved to have known out of those 1930 patients how many of those patients got their blood sugar
4: checked. Mm-hmm. And, and to speak to Paul's point, uh, this is Keith again, that uh, it was a single service and that it would have to be expanded to a multi center trial. I, I think it's important though because the authors did recognize that the uh, external validity or the generalizability of the study was limited because it only involved one service so that would address both issues the in size of the study population as well as the external validity or the uh, generalizability of the study Yeah. all right um, I usually like to introduce
1: some controversial uh, statements to just get get a rise out of you guys but at the moment I'm just really crazed about this error rate and how we're going to do something about this we don't need to reach statistical significance to know that we are uh, not giving the right dosage for medications so um, if in fact high fidelity simulation was the answer you would assume PD steps include some um, medication dosage uh, kind of uh, review is that you know did we just miss the mark here Did this training this 9-hour training did it actually help us or what was the rate
5: before this i think it did dave i mean uh, like as you said before 35% of the providers who had the pd steps course were more likely to check the blood glucose and 39% were more likely to administer the midazolam so i think it certainly had an impact um, if not anything more than refreshing them on the uh, the proper care for seizure management <coughs>
3: And I also wonder if we, so this study ran for two years, and the folks who had the intervention, who had the training, had nine hours of training at one point in two years. So it's distinctly possible that a trained provider who went through the PD steps training didn't see a patient who met the inclusion criteria for a year plus after their training. So I think, even then, even though there may have been that long window, we don't know if there was, but it's possible, um, between a relatively short period of training and a critical patient, it seems that the training still did have an impact. So I yeah. think the, the the value of the high fidelity uh, simulation and the high fidelity training is there, but I think we may be. Um, expecting too much of it for it to last that long.
5: Yeah and I I think what you're talking about is like knowledge decay because, because what happens is you know when we run calls with great frequency such as chest pain we become very proficient at taking care of those type of patients but the frequency of us running a patient a pediatric patient having an active seizure is not nearly the likelihood of running that chest pain patient and so our knowledge and our skills tend to decay because we forget what we're what we're supposed to remember
3: right
4: so uh, let me take an opportunity to stir the pot here just a little bit and ask this question does high fidelity simulation correct that problem of dosage errors or is that a discrete skill that could be learned outside of simulation well clearly it didn't hear
1: if there was um, you would have thought that we would have seen massively better results uh, from the people who participate in the intervention but it wasn't the point of the intervention right nobody when they first taught the course that's that goes back to what's the intent of the study and if the intent of the study was to reduce medication errors that's a different intent here we were talking we're talking about they were intending for people to get more medication you know more more kids to get actually treated with meds and and Blood sugars checked. I don't know enough about PD steps uh, to know uh, the emphasis on the correct dosing and or whether it was carried out in such a way that the instructors could actually see the correct dose. I think so much of our high fidelity simulation, people drop uh, whatever they want to drop and give whatever they want to give, but but no one's really looking at the exact concentration in syringes. It's uh, um, just sloppy simulation. I have to disagree with you guys, though. Um, if if uh, if we're going to pay people and go to the trouble and time to train them for nine hours, you would hope that it would last a little while, especially if it's impactful. So, is it just that we have kind of um, uh, uh, education that's just completely ineffective? Just sit around and. Uh, and then go out and keep making the same mistakes.
2: I wonder if it was really effective. And then two or three months later, they did a really good high-fidelity ACLS class, and two or three months later, they did PHTLS. And by the time this pediatric patient rolled around, there there just was a, a deficit. As I'm looking at these numbers, I can't help but think for a two-year study period, they were only able to find 250 actively seizing children, 258 if you uh, count the ones who there weren't records for and this is in Houston which is a big area. It seems as if this is such a low frequency event we might be talking one one patient contact per career even. So it's it's very interesting how there's so much knowledge we have to learn and store away for that one call we may or may not ever get and how how to remain proficient in all of the potential patients you can encounter. So, I think that 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 we may
3: be trying to to given everything that was just said and the infrequency of this patient, I don't know that it is realistic or feasible for us to expect providers to retain all of the knowledge and skills in their brains that they need. And I think that and this may or may not be a controversial statement, I don't know, but I think EMS education needs to get away from this notion that we're going to be able to know everything all the time. And, you know, a checklist was mentioned early on and we need to move towards recognizing the fallibility of our brains and our training, especially under stress. I mean, how long ago was it that this group talked about cognitive load theory and we need to recognize that reality and instead of expecting our providers to do what seems to be close to if not totally impossible we need to give them the tools to be successful and those tools may be better checklists better and education that allows them or destigmatizes the use of them so that we can make sure that these mistakes aren't happening.
1: Amen, brother. Uh, you know what? Um, you're singing my tune, so um, I know Paul is actually Paul and Keith are t- tired of hearing me do this in workshops. But um, we've got to we've got to be relying more on on um, some I I wouldn't call them crutches or, or cheat sheets because they're it, we're not cheating and we're not we're not you know trying to make up for deficiencies. We just know that. Pilots use them all the time. Aviation is is uh, a much safer industry because people take the time to double check and make sure they hit everything on the list. Um, we just put up a link for the EMSReference.com checklists that are an attempt to start some checklists, and and maybe this particular uh, podcast and um, uh, paper should cause us to think we should have a checklist for seizing children because it just so ha- happens very rarely and when it does we tend not to apparently do well I, I also I guess I was going to challenge the group um, you know we sort of accept the definition of, of uh, the fact that these these paramedics knew when the child was seizing I've watched neurologists argue over EEGs, um, saying I think this person is still actively seizing and uh, but they're they're flaccid they're not moving there are it's not large motor seizures so a part of me is questioning not to again throw stones at at, uh, at uh, the Houston Fire Department because I think they do a great job uh, but just just again in terms of recognition of patients that are still seizing um, times that we may have called that a postictal state or we had maybe just minor motor movement that 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 you know or just lack of lucid periods where we we maybe didn't catch all those seizures there's nowhere in this paper where we define actively seizing it's almost just like a given that we would be able to just look at somebody and know that they're seizing Okay, I'm glad I made that comment. Apparently, no one bit <laughs> well and uh, uh our audience has been surprisingly quiet in this particular uh uh podcast and and we've been egging them on to ask questions and make comments if they have any uh so I don't want
5: go go ahead Dave, can I make one more discussion yeah, yeah, yeah
1: please please
5: um So one of the discussion pieces is, and I've kind of touched on this a little bit, simulation is likely to be most beneficial with repeated exposure, which will enhance retention. Um, I was an educator in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and we participated in a large uh, cardiac study um, that was done internationally. And uh, one of the things that we found um, was that, and this is related to CPR, Uh, particularly fractions of being on the chest for every minute and times that they were off is that those fractions would drop after CPR training was conducted about six months later and so then we would reconduct some CPR training and the fractions would increase again and then they would dwindle back down after six months and this went on and on and on and so I think there's a case to be made here that retraining on some cases and particularly this low frequency high acuity is, is required um, just you know putting them in a paramedic class and saying okay now you know how to treat pediatric seizures and then sending them to one course um, later in their careers is probably not enough you know because of the decay and the, the lack of the retention and so maybe something to follow up with is will is there some time period you know that these this knowledge decay occurs is it six months is it a year is it two years and so that might be something worth, you know, looking into and seeing if there is some type of model or some type of timeline that we should adhere to for, for these patients who have you know, high acuity, low frequency encounters. I mean, because we clearly saw the, the, the fraction times decrease in a six-month period just on CPR, and every paramedic probably does CPR several times a year.
4: I, I agree with you, Paul, and this is Keith again. And I was trying to evoke some uh, some reprisal from you guys whenever I was taking the position I was, but I think the two things that we, we unanimously agree on is that um, high fidelity simulation is important in education and should be repeated frequently to, to prevent deterioration of skills, and as Dave so eloquently pointed out, uh, having references and checklists and and resources at your fingertips as a healthcare provider is essential. So I I agree with you guys completely.
1: So I'm going to play I'm going to play the skeptic, Paul, because we can't we can't drill on pediatric uh, seizures every other month and expect to be able to also fit in all of the other things in our curriculum that are. Simply high acuity and much more frequent, or or just as as, is critical. I don't know cricothyrotomies or or um, endotracheal intubation or some of the other things that we are that are high acuity, low frequently kind of events. Um, Would you would you be willing to compromise to say that um, high fidelity education, high fidelity simulation, in crisis management? so it can if we can get people who can stay calm in highly stressful environments could be transferable not just to a pediatric seizure but a pediatric cardiac arrest any number of other uh, events to just you know help people within teams root out error and improve patient care would you would you be willing to
5: meet sure. me halfway sure no i think one of the the reasons they hypothesized, you know, that they had the dosing errors because it was because of psychological stress, and so as you alluded to earlier, perhaps we as educators haven't done a good job to create those stressful environments in our in our training areas.
1: Love it, love it. Um, uh, Richard Ellis, who's uh, remained qu- kind of uh, quiet for this uh, podcast, is just sent us a note. He says, "I agree. Low frequency, high risk activities such as." Uh, this need to be reviewed, and um, uh, other research has shown that the uh, that the skills reviewed frequently, like a nutriculivation, increases overall success. So um, it sounds like uh, our listeners are agreeing. Well, uh, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate you guys tuning in, and of course, the ex- experience and expertise of the panelists but also the the, the folks online so uh, unless we we have questions um, I think we're we're about ready to wrap it up any any other parting comments all right well we want to make sure that you know when these podcasts are and can tune in hopefully with your entire class if you have a, a group of uh, uh, paramedic students uh, of any kind EMTs uh, etc so next month we always do this on the second Monday of the month next month we will be commenting on uh, we went to pediatrics this year this this uh, month so we we'll could do geriatrics next one is uh, paramedics assessing elders at risk for independence loss this, this peril study uh, derivation reliability and comparative effectiveness: of a clinical prediction rule so here's another example of a potential checklist that will help us and uh, Paul Rosenberger has been working diligently on that project uh, uh, putting together the the uh, research review column with me so thank you Paul and uh, this month we had Sean put together the the uh, the, the um, column uh, for this pediatric uh, seizure one so thank you Sean and an open invitation to anyone listening that if you find research that we uh, you think we should be reviewing and uh, should be in there and if you want to collaborate and contribute we want that the, the mission of the prehospital care research forum is to educate disseminate uh, and uh, encourage research uh, and evidence-based practices so we need to introduce a whole new generation of paramedics and EMT's to how to critically think about some of these papers and what is and what isn't. So, even a, a terrible paper has been fun to rip apart. And, and in this case, we have uh, Dr. Shaw, who's done a great job, a wonderful paper. Next month, we'll look at Dr. Lee et al., um, Dr. Verbeek's work uh, on geriatrics. So, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll hopefully uh, uh, tune in next month. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everyone. All right. Thanks, everybody. Be safe.